David Cullen Bain, the Dunedin man found guilty of murdering his family, appeared to go into a state of shock on hearing the guilty verdict. He started saying black hands, that they were taking them away. Black hands. Do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. <laughs> I want to assure you, I did not kill my family. It goes without saying that the Bain case is a circumstantial case. In other words, the case against Robin or David is based on inferences that can be drawn from facts or circumstances rather than on eyewitness accounts. No one witnessed the shootings and lived to tell the tale. But there is no shortage of other evidence, and the question is whether this evidence, as a whole, leads inevitably to a particular conclusion. As judges often tell juries, each bit of circumstantial evidence should be looked at like a strand of rope, so that one strand may be too flimsy to hold the weight of a firm conclusion, but will gather strength as other strands combine with it to provide a compelling picture. So in this episode, we'll put speculation aside and look at the hard evidence. I'm journalist Martin Van Bainen, And this is a podcast series about the Bain family murders. On June the 20th, 1994, five members of the Bain family were shot in their home in Dunedin. Only the father, Robin Bain, who appeared to have shot the family and then himself, or his son, David, the only survivor, could have been responsible. David was convicted of the murders in 1995, but acquitted after a second trial in 2009. On David's side of the ledger, there are at least five items clearly raising at least a strong cause for suspicion that he was the shooter. Let's start with David's clear and fresh-looking fingerprints that were found on the front part of the rifle stock. The prints, according to police fingerprint officer Kim Jones, who examined the rifle the day after the shootings, were made by fingers which already had blood on them. David told police he had not touched the rifle so the fingerprints made with blood already on the fingers would take some explaining. Kim Jones told David's second trial how his initial examination was done. How did that examination begin? With a visual, visual examination. And when you visually examined it, what was your first impressions or first findings? The rifle was covered in what appeared to be blood. Now, when you say what appears to be blood, why do you say it appears to be blood? Well, the red pigment um, pointed to the fact that it was obviously blood on the firearm. And as far as whether it was human or animal blood, are you able to tell by just looking at that visual examination? I cannot. No. <laughs> but in terms of the years of experience with blood and blood-related matters you've told us about, the um, the appearance that it had, did it seem to differ in any way from blood? No, sir. Right. Apart from that first visual examination, did you do any other type of examination? Thereafter the visual examination, <coughs> I put the firearm under what we call a crime light or polylight, a portable laser. It's a very intense light and at a particular wavelength, it will enhance fingerprints and blood. 
So at 4.15, it's fairly specific for blood. So I shone the light at 4.15 nanometers onto the item of interest, the rifle, and I spied what I believe to be blood on that rifle. So the, the reaction you got at 4.15, what did that indicate to you? That it was blood, sir. Right. Blood has a very narrow absorption band and will actually appear very black as it absorbs this violet light from the, the laser. Leaving aside what's being evinced and what wasn't. How extensive did the rifle appear to be covered in blood or not? It was my opinion the rifle was covered in its entirety by what appeared to be blood. The rifle itself, the stock, the strap, when the you say stock. What do you mean by that? The stock, sir. Stock, sorry, the stock. Yep. Yeah, the stock, the scope, and the silencer. So, as I say, it appeared to be covered in its entirety by blood. And the examination you were doing, obviously, because of your expertise, was particularly to look to see if there were any fingerprints. In what appeared to be blood, sir, yes. And did you find any? I did, sir. As a result of my examination, my preliminary examination of the firearm. I located four fingerprints in what appeared to be blood. Jones also said that although the rifle appeared to be entirely smeared with blood, there was no blood between each of David's fingerprints. That suggested his fingers had protected the area of the prints from smearing or blood splatter. While David's fingerprints on the firearm was a strong bit of evidence against him, it wasn't without its problems. The main problem was that no material from the actual prints was removed and sampled because it was thought important to leave the prints intact. Other blood samples taken from all over the rifle were tested and the results showed the blood was Stevens. But despite more testing in 1997 and 2003, no human DNA was ever detected in the material from the area of David's prints. In David's first trial, the defence argued David had inadvertently got blood on his fingers and, in a forgotten action, had picked up the rifle and left his bloody prints on it. But if that was true, why was there no residual blood on David's hands when police found him in his room after he called 111? In the period between the first trial and David's retrial in 2009, the defence camp changed tack and argued the prints were made not with human blood, but with animal blood. The theory was that David had used the rifle in January or February of 1994 to shoot rabbits, got rabbit blood on his hands, and left the prints behind when he gripped the rifle. The obvious difficulty with that proposition was explaining how the prints, in dried and fairly old blood, had survived the handling the rifle received in the shootings, to still appear fresh and clear. And don't forget, the rifle looked as though it had been wiped to create the smearing, so the prints had also escaped any damage from that as well. In David's second trial in 2009, the defence decided to attack the fingerprint evidence on another front. It abandoned the rabbit possum blood argument, instead arguing David's fingerprints were not made with blood, animal or human at all. A former police fingerprint technician from England, Carl Lloyd, 
gave evidence for the defence to say photographs of the prints showed the colour of the print ridges was wrong if the material was blood. He suggested David had made the prints with fingers covered only in the usual secretions or another contaminant, but not blood. He denied misinterpreting the photographs. And had he considered the rabbit blood theory? No, he hadn't. In fact, he wasn't even aware of it. The defence also mounted a full-scale assault on Kim Jones and was able to show he had made a number of mistakes. In cross-examination, Michael Reed QC was able to show Jones had wrongly told the jury in the first trial that blood under light from a polylight fluoresces. In fact, blood shows up as dark areas. No photographs of David's four fingerprints on the rifle were taken when the rifle was first properly examined on the day after the shootings. Jones had labelled a photograph of David's forefinger print as a print that had been chemically enhanced, when he actually meant visually enhanced. And he also disagreed with ESR scientist Peter Henschel about when the sample from the area of the fingerprints was removed, and exactly from which location. In 2012, when David was interviewed by Justice Binney for his compensation claim, David was back to insisting the prints were made during a rabbit shooting trip. In the end, the fingerprint evidence wasn't quite there. Yes, the prints were clear, fresh and recent, and in blood, according to Jones. And importantly, he saw no blood between the prints. But the prosecution had to concede it had no actual proof that the fingerprints were made with blood, and that the blood was human blood. While extensive testing found no blood from any of the deceased family members on Robin or his clothing, David was different. Stephen's blood, and only Stephen's blood, was detected on several parts of the clothes he was wearing and police arrived at Every Street after the shootings. The white t-shirt David was wearing had Stephen's blood on the lower front and back and also on the upper back. His shorts had a blood stain in the crotch area and more of Stephen's blood was found on the soles of his socks. One sock had well-defined blood spots, which had soaked right through the thickness of the fabric and most likely came from above. How could David have got so much of Stephen's blood on him? The defence said the blood must have come from David brushing against blood that was on surfaces around the house, but mainly in Stephen's room. This, of course, did not quite explain the blood on the crotch of David's shorts, or the spots of blood on his socks. Although, if David was blundering around the house finding the bodies, several scenarios could explain them. The spots, for instance, might have been picked up by David walking on fresh blood spots on the carpet in Stephen's room. It's also curious that when David was found by police in his bedroom on June the 20th, his hands were very clean. If he had staggered around the house out of his mind with the horror, he still managed to keep his hands and fingernails clean so clean that no blood was found on the telephone he used to call the police. In the end, the blood evidence comes back to the fact Stephen's blood was detected on David, but not on Robin. We move now to David's injuries. The killer of the Bain family obviously never bargained for a fight. The shootings were supposed to be clean, painless and clinical, without any of the first four victims waking from their sleep. Hence, the killer wore socks, left the silencer on the rifle, and crept around in the dark. But the plan went badly wrong in Stephen's room. 
the state of Stephen's room and the position of his body showed the struggle had been violent, desperate, and at least a few minutes long. Stephen's body was covered in blood, bruises and abrasions. The person he fought with would not have escaped unscathed either. The killer would have sustained a few bruises and grazes at the least, perhaps from falling over and hitting objects in the room. David had several injuries consistent with a fight with Stephen. He was first examined by the police doctor about 11.20am on the morning of the shootings, and the doctor recorded three bruises on the right side of David's head and a graze on David's right knee. The knee scrape was similar to an abrasion on Stephen's leg. David had no explanation for the injuries. Photographs taken at the time also show a marked redness around the knuckles of David's hands. At his first trial, David repeated he couldn't remember how he got the injuries and said he did not have the head bruise or the scrape on his knee while doing the paper run or immediately after it. My memory is clear up until seeing my mother, he told the court. The defence argued David had received the knock to his head when he was grabbed by his arm and leg and placed in a recovery position by Constable Andrew. Andrew had not noticed David's head come into contact with anything and said David would have hurt a different part of his head if he had hit any part of the furniture. Despite the apparent thoroughness of his examination and the taking of samples, could Dr Pride have missed something very important? Perhaps because he was working under the assumption David was a pitiable victim. He apparently missed scratch marks on David's chest, which a prison officer said he saw when David was arrested and remanded in custody at Dunedin Prison. Tom Samuel told David's second trial, After he'd taken his uh, clothing off, the top part of his clothing, did you notice anything? Uh, the only thing I noticed was that um, he appeared to have um, uh, scratch marks and some bruising um, around the right shoulder, upper arm area. And what sort of um, scratch marks or bruises were they? How would you describe The physical natures would be consistent with someone um, sort of clawing or grabbing through clothing. A female friend had also seen grazes on David's chest when she was talking to him on the Wednesday night after the shootings. Yeah, um, I can't remember now how we came round to it, but oh, I know it was because he couldn't because of the twenty minutes that he couldn't remember. And one of the things, he said, I can't remember getting this. And I said, I beg your pardon. And um, he moved his shirt and he had scratches. Um, i trying to remember. On his left side coming down like that. And there was um, about four or five light grazes. Could Dr Pride, an experienced police doctor who died before the second trial, have overlooked such vital evidence? The doctor might, for instance not have seen the marks if David had kept his T-shirt on during the examination, but David said he took all his clothes off. David's defence team said his injuries had obvious innocent causes, and if Dr Pride didn't see the grazes, they weren't there. We go now to another potentially damaging piece of evidence against David. On the Thursday night after the murders, detectives searching Stephen's cluttered bedroom found a loose lens on the floor at the bottom of a set of bunks. 
Before finding the lens, they had removed a variety of items from that area of the floor, including shoes, clothes, a small suitcase and a broom handle. The find was very important because the lens was an exact fit for a spectacles frame found on a chair in David's bedroom. The frame, the left arm of which was twisted upwards, was missing both lenses. Only one lens was on the chair. As it turned out, the gold-framed spectacles on David's chair belonged to Margaret. Some of the evidence pointed to David wearing the spectacles in the shootings. For a start, David would have found the glasses useful, as they weren't far off his own prescription and his own glasses were being repaired. Quite short-sighted, he would have struggled to see well in the dark house without glasses. It needs to be remembered that the glasses were of no use to Robin at all. David had bruises to the right side of his face, so the whack he got might have dislodged the glasses and damaged the frame. In addition, David hadn't been able to explain the presence of the damaged spectacles in his room. The natural inference from the finding of the lens was that David had worn the glasses to execute the family, but in the fight with Stephen, they had been knocked off, damaged, and both lenses dislodged. David must have found the frame and one lens, but not the one found later in Stephen's bedroom. The evidence wasn't without its problems. Nothing showed David had worn the glasses during the shootings. For example, the frame and both lenses were clear of any biological material, such as a blood spot, linking them to the fight with Stephen. David gave evidence in his first trial, saying he had not worn the glasses at all in the week before the shootings and had not worn them for many months. However, Michael Guest, David's lawyer in the first trial, believes David is telling lies about the glasses as he is adamant David told him before the first trial he was wearing his mother's glasses on the Sunday night before the shootings. Guest says he was shocked David changed the story and felt compelled, because of his ethical duty to the court, to tell the first trial's prosecutor, Bill Wright, who decided to let the issue lie. David's aunt, Jan Clark, recalled David telling the family he had worn the glasses over the weekend. This is Jan Clark in the second trial. At some stage around this time, was there a discussion about glasses? Um, yes, later, after David got up and had some uh, breakfast, um, we were then sitting in the lounge, David, and Heidi and myself, and um, David uh, sort of rubbed his eyes like that, you know, and I said, oh, your eyes troubling you, dear, and he's... Um, just record, when you say rubbing his eyes, you, you're... Yes, it was a sort of a movement like that, he just, just as though his eyes were troubling him. And I said, are your eyes troubling you, dear? And he said, um, yes, they are a bit, I really need my glasses. And I went to get up to go and get them and saying, you know, where are they? And he explained that um, his own glasses had been broken the previous Thursday when he was leaving his music um, lesson. And um, um, I asked him how he had been managing in the meantime, and he said he had been wearing an old pair of Margaret's glasses. However, police were not able to find anyone who remembered seeing David wearing the glasses outside the home after his own pair were broken. In addition, Clark did not come to the police 
with the information about the glasses until six years after the shootings. After Joe Caron became involved in David's defence campaign in 1996, the attack on the lens evidence was also directed towards the credibility of the finder, Detective Sergeant Milton Weir. At David's first trial, Weir had looked at a photograph of Stephen's bedroom when Stephen's body was still in the room and pointed to the object that he thought was the lens. Karam claimed that if Weir was right about the location of the lens, it should have been spotted much earlier because it was partly out in the open and Weir would not have had to remove so many items before finding it. The issue simmered away for years, culminating in Weir accepting he must have been pointing to some sort of visual effect that looked like the lens when he gave evidence at the first trial. At David's second trial, the prosecution had the benefit of evidence from a police photographer who had analysed video and photographic material from Stephen's room. Simon Shollum, now retired, had been involved in the case in 1997 and was called into the second trial to give an opinion on some photographic evidence presented by the defence. This required him to digitise the original video of the scene. According to Shollum, the footage showed that the object Weir had pointed out in the first trial was in fact the lens that had caused so much controversy. Shollum said that when Weir found the lens on the Thursday after the shootings, it had moved a few centimetres because items had been shunted around to move Stephen's body out of the room. In moving the body, the lens had shifted and become covered in other materials which squared with Weir's account that he had removed various items before finding the lens. So Weir was partly right, Shalom said, when he pointed to the lens in the photograph. It had just shifted by the time Weir found it on the Thursday. The crucial point here is this. David's supporters have accused the police of planting the lens, realising, of course, that it is a damning bit of evidence and needs to be explained. But here was police photographer Shalom saying the original video footage, digitised and enhanced, showed the lens in Stephen's bedroom at the time when Stephen's body was still in the room and before any hint of planting evidence could be justified. Understandably, this took the defence by surprise. But you see, the police say that that couldn't have happened. But in any event, what you're describing in the bottom of that photograph is what your superiors accepted or suspected of the fact. That's where we've got to. That's what they've been told. That's, that's the dispute. I believe it's, it's in fact, it's capable of demonstration that that is the lens. But nevertheless, what the police put to the court of appeal and what the police have said in this case is that that was a speculative effect. Well, no matter how often repeated, if it's not the truth, it's not the truth. Finally, we turn to the evidence about David's sister Lani at gurgling. By his first trial, David had recovered a slew of snapshot-type memories to cover the 25 minutes he was unable to explain directly after the shootings. When asked about his movements in the house on his return home, he talked first about finding Stephen's body and then said, and we have used an actor's voice here, The next thing I remember is being in Laniette's room and I could hear her gurgling. I could see blood all over her face and on the pillow. I can't recall if I touched her. I went right up beside the bed. 
I must have left the room at that stage. I don't recall it. David's new memory was to require a lot of awkward explanation later because it raised the strong probability Laniet was still alive when David heard her gurgling. To understand this, we need to look at the bullet wounds to Laniet. One of the bullets entered her upper cheek, causing only minor damage to her brain, but doing enough damage to her upper passages, including her sinuses, to fill her lungs with blood and mucus. The bullet might have knocked her out, but it would not have killed her. The other two shots to her head were, however, so damaging to her brain that it appeared death would have been instant, and obviously any breathing afterwards would have been impossible. Laniet had blood on her hands, which suggested she had lived long enough to move her arms. Only one conclusion was possible, the prosecution said. Laniet had survived the first shot, her ear passages had filled with blood and mucus, and she struggled, perhaps unconsciously, to breathe. The noise would have been the gurgling sound, as David had described. If David heard Laniet gurgling, he, not Robin, must have fired the last two shots, either of which were much more damaging than the cheek shot and would have been immediately fatal. In other words, the problem with David's story was this. When he came home, Laniet should have been long dead. Yet he heard her gurgling, noises she could have made only when alive. So it looked as though David had finished her off. David, it seemed, had made a terrible gaffe, and as it happened, more was to come. David had written about the gurgling in a document he returned to his lawyer, Michael Guest, before the first trial in 1995. In the margin of the document, David wrote these words, which are voiced by an actor. When I went into her room, I heard groaning-type sounds muffled by what sounded like water. Turned on light, they came from her. Went over to her, but could see there was nothing I could do. I didn't touch her. David's note did not emerge until 1998, when it was among documents his defence camp provided to the Ministry of Justice to support David's petition for the Royal Prerogative of Mercy. At David's second trial, retired pathologist Dr James Ferris said David's account so accurately reflected the expected observations of someone inhaling blood that they gave great credence to the observations and their accuracy. Another resulting issue for David to explain was why he hadn't gone for help immediately after finding Laniette. Crown Prosecutor Kieran Raftery said in his closing address in the second trial, From there he saw that he was well and truly dead. From there he goes into Laniette's room. And this is in his scenario, coming back from the paper round, Italian, so dad's murdered them all. And what does he hear? He hears his own sister, Gerdon. What does he do? Does he behave like a brother? Does he go straight to the telephone and dial on all month to get someone to help? Does he do a thing for 15 or 20 minutes? He does nothing to help his sister, who is girly, who is giving, in layman's terms, signs of life. He is no pathologist. He is no expert. He hears something that any family member hears gurgling, muffled by what sound like water, as a sign of life. And if you're genuinely home from the paper run, and you hear that sign of life, you would do 
what any human being would do. He would strain heaven and earth to get someone there as fast as possible. My sister is still alive. The rest seem to be dead, but she's still alive. Get here as fast as you can. But no. He waits 15 or 20 minutes before he telephones and tells the 111 people. I can say this is the person he spoke to most of the time, or the 111, Mr. Dempsey, which was actually recorded. St. John's ambulance. They're all there. But by the time he left it, for 15 to 20 minutes, they certainly were. There wasn't a chance of that being alive. But maybe dead bodies could make sounds that sounded like gurgling. In a statement to the court in the retrial, Ray Pritchett, a retired laboratory technician who had been in charge of the Pathology Teaching Museum at the Otago Medical School, recalled many occasions when he experienced the phenomenon of gurgling noises emanating from dead bodies. His comments are read by an actor. Particularly when gases and or fluid in the lungs, which escapes and makes gurgling noises, sometimes spontaneously, but more often when the body is moved. Pritchard, who had died by the time of the retrial, did not appear to have much experience with people very recently dead. In the second trial, the defence made a big effort to counter the damaging inferences from David's gurgling comments. To do this, it had to dispute the Crown theory on the order of the shots. Remember, the Crown said the cheek shot was first, and then either of the other two shots were next. The defence needed to show Laniette might have been able to breathe and therefore gurgle even after the two shots that would normally be immediately fatal. All the pathologists agreed Laniette could have continued breathing after the cheek shot and may even have become conscious. Pathologists agreed death would have been quick after the two non-cheek shots, but disagreed on how quick. David's case was helped by evidence from the defence pathologists who would not discount the possibility Laniette could have continued breathing even after all three headshots. A Home Office pathologist from Britain, Dr Robert Chapman, discussed the issue at the second trial. The presence of cerebral edema or pulmonary edema, have you considered that? Yes, I have. And what does that indicate as to any period of survival post-head injury with active respiratory efforts? Well, uh, I think it, it indicates a period of survival. One can't say exactly what, uh, but um, that sort of um, phenomenon, in my view, would take some minutes to develop. So it would indicate that sort of period of survival at least. And as to trying to assess the period of survival following brain injuries, what is your view of trying to do that? Again, in my experience, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do because of the inherent variability between individuals and the injuries to their brains. In other words, there can be very surprising periods of survival in some cases, and in other cases, really quite rapid death, so it's very variable. Defence expert Peter Ross came up with a different order of shots based on an analysis of the physical evidence like blood spatter. His theory was essentially that the cheek shot was the last shot because he couldn't see any evidence of Laniette's head moving to any degree after that shot. The blood was undisturbed, he said. A blood pattern expert from England, Dr John Manlove, also believed Laniette had not moved after the cheek shot, which indicated to him it must have been the last. 
The issue shows the difficulty of reconstructing the events in Laniat's bedroom by taking into account the complex medical and physical factors available, which provide something for every expert. It shows also what a tangled mess evidence can become by the time the various experts have given their opinions. At the end, the jury was left with essentially two choices. The first was that Laniat survived the cheek shot and was killed instantly by the other two shots, which in almost all cases would have caused immediate death. The other choice was that somehow Laniat had survived all three shots for a sufficiently long time for David to have reached her when she was still alive and gurgling but decided, remarkably in the circumstances, there was nothing he could do. If Laniat was dead when David found her, she could still have gurgled or made a noise according to a phenomenon not well documented or recorded. In the end, the gurgling became yet another potentially damaging bit of David's story the defence had to explain. In the next episode, we'll look at some of the hard evidence and the defence contentions that were damaging to Robin, or at least left things hanging. I'm Martin Van Balen. I look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a joint stuff and tandem studios production. Written and presented by Martin Van Bainen, audio engineered and co-produced by Brett Robertson, and produced by Dave Dunlay and Kamala Heyman.